welcome to today's lecture, so which is about the principles of protein structure. Like last week, you heard about like amino acids. Like, oh, sorry. Can you hear me louder? Oh, I just tried to talk louder. Does it work like this, or still louder? All right. Can you hear me louder now? Does it work? Okay. Thank you. So last class you heard about like amino acids, like what are their chemical and physical properties, that they are the building blocks of like polypeptides or like in larger scale like in proteins. And today we want to talk about the protein structure itself. So we want to talk more specific like about like the primary, the secondary and the tertiary structure of proteins. So let's start simple. And what is like the primary structure of a protein? So here it says like the primary structure is simply like the sequence of amino acids. So you heard, learned about like the three digit and the one digit code like last class. So it's just simple like the sequence of amino acid which determines like the primary structure of a protein. So but how is this determined? So either you can do it directly or indirectly. So a direct method to determine like the amino acid sequence is like admin degradation or admin sequencing. What you do here is like that the amino acids are removed one at a time and identified uh, by high performance liquid chromatography or short like HPLC, but like this method works fine for like small proteins, like here it's written like up to 50 amino acids, but like I think like in real life actually the limit is between 20 to 30 amino acids. And so therefore it's hard to identify a whole protein which has like let's say 200, 300, 400 amino acids. But what you can do still is like, or what people actually did in the lab in the past is like you take the whole protein, you digest the protein, so you make like 100 amino acids, you make it five times 20 amino acid chains, chains, and then you identify all five polypeptides. So at the end, you end up with the whole protein sequence again, which is fine and works, but as you can imagine, so it takes a lot of time to do so, and it's like a complicated process. And although this admin sequencing, admin degradation was like automa automated like in the last decades, it's still like, needs a lot of effort. So what people do nowadays, you can do or identify the amino acid sequence like indirectly by looking just simply at the DNA sequence. As you all know, like the DNA sequence encodes like the, or stores the genetic code. And I'm sure you're all familiar with like this triplet code, for example, that AUG or ATG in DNA sequence encodes at the end like for methionine, for example. So meaning, you have the DNA sequence of a known protein or of an unknown protein. So you can simply just like go from the DNA se sequence to the amino acid sequence. And so as you can imagine, like DNA sequencing is like a much faster method than admin degradation or admin sequencing. So, and it also costs less. So the effort you invest there is much simpler. So, and since nowadays like almost 
all DNA sequences are known for like commonly used organisms in the lab, like for example, like Drosophila if you work with fly or like with mice, also like for human, yeast, a lot of bacteria like E. coli. So it's simply, you, you just go like to the internet, to like a, a, a database, to search for the genome, you select your protein of interest, and then you can directly convert it in like in the amino acid sequence, also with like available online tools, which makes it very easy and very fast. So since we've talked like about the primary structure, we'd want to go to the secondary structure. And does any one of you know any secondary structures, common secondary structures already? Yes? Sorry? Keratin. Yeah, keratin is like already like a structural protein, but I talk more simple, like which are the different building blocks like in the secondary structure which make up a whole protein. Yes? Yeah, alpha helixes and beta sheets are probably the best known secondary structures. And you heard about like last week about the amino acids and you heard about like polypeptide sequence and how you write them. So you always start like in the left with the amino terminus, with the N terminus, and then they are written to the left to the carboxyl terminus to the C terminus. And you already heard about like last lecture. So here we can see like four amino acids. And you heard about that like this carbon has like a partially double bond with this oxygen and the nitrogen here. And so scientists, like especially like in this case Linus Pauling, uh, they discovered this partially double bond. And also from this they concluded, okay, within this partially double bond it's impossible or like the amino acid is like less flexible in this region. So what are the other bonds or the other region which, which makes like amino acids or then like more uh, complex systems like polypeptides and proteins, which makes this flexible? And so they came up with like two bonds which are, which are available to, have, to, to get like in different orientations in like 3D or in a three-dimensional three space. And so they are referred to as phi and psi, which determines their angle. So they are between like this nitrogen here and this alpha carboxyl, and also the, between like the carbon and the alpha carboxyl. So they thought about like, okay, these are the actually only bonds which are available to make like a polypeptide chain like flexible. And like then other scientists like Ramachandran and some fellows came up with this Ramachandran blood. So what you can see here in this diagram is like on the x-axis you have like the phi shown in degrees going from one, minus 180 to plus 180. And on the y-axis you have psi also like ranging from minus 180 to plus 180. So in theory, uh, amino acids can take all the space in here. But like in nature, this does not occur. So actually these plots were done like according to like already known crystal structures. And so what you can see here is like there's like a lot of white space where actually uh, most amino acids will not fold like. And you have like blue spaces here ranging from like light blue to dark blue. And like meaning, so these are well-defined regions which we come later to in the lecture which define like different secondary structures within like a protein or like a polypeptide. So as I mentioned as well, we will see amino acids occurring within particular secondary structures 
occupies certain well-described regions of this plot. So let's jump to an example here. So this is like our actually data. So on the left, there's like this Ramachandran blot shown for glycine. And on the right, there's like a Ramachandran blot shown for proline. And both of them are like special cases, so to speak. Uh, does, can anyone imagine why? Does anyone know about the R groups of glycine or proline, for example? What are them? Yeah. Sorry, say it again. Exactly. As well, this and it's just like this arom ar aromatic ring, just a single aromatic ring with no linker in between, and it can fold back. So it's also like more steric. And does anyone know of you like about glycine? What is like the R group of glycine? Yes. Exactly. It's only a hydrogen, which makes it more flexible. And this is what you can see actually on this Ramachandran blot if you look at the left. So there are a lot of spaces occupied by glycine, whereas like for proline, they mostly have like two regions which are like highly occupied. And imagine like each dot here represents like a possible angle how these amino acids was found in nature. So what people actually do is like, for example, if we take a look at glycine, so they take a whole structure of a protein and they search for every glycine within the structure and then like in which angle they are found, they make a, make a dot on this plot. Yes, sorry? Uh, exactly, yes. So, but like you can see like, I mean, they, they, there are different possibilities, but like it's more like, I mean, it's not like you will not solve the structure by this plot, but it will give you already like an insight, which is most likely for these amino acids to fold in. So if you can see here, like there are two well, or like darker regions in this plot here, whereas also here, so it's most likely that glycine will fold in this way or proline will fold in this way. Okay, let's see. And then it's also like, this is like for each single amino acid, you can do a Ramachandran blot. So at the end, if you take a look at like amino acid sequence, let's say of like 20 amino acids, you will take a look at the Ramachandran blots for all 20 amino acids, which are like in this stretch. And then let's say like 80% of the amino acids, which you take a look, closer look at, like have like a high density region in this space. So it's most likely that you can already like predict that it will fold in this stage within like this 20 amino acid stretch. Yes? So it's like, as I told you, like we have like most likely like, because like these are like steric, so not flexible regions. So you can imagine that only like between those two angles, the, the, uh, the amino acids can fold, right? And it's like limited, like it's, I mean, in, in theory, it's like 360 degrees, how this can turn around this molecule. But like, remember that this region here is like always like not flexible. So you have like one part which is not flexible and the other part can turn around. And then like there's a next amino acid attached to it where again you have like a non-flexible region 
and again you have a flexible region, right? So at the end, like how the amino acids are attached to each other, like they make up like then the secondary structure in which they can fold. Okay, so as we already heard, like one well-described secondary structure is like the alpha helix, and so the permissible bond angles in amino acids allow for the formation of certain common features of stable local protein structure. And like, remember that local protein structure is called secondary structure. And here we can see like, as an example, like alpha helixes, which are like most commonly found type of protein secondary structure. And how does this form? It's like, you can see here like an alpha helix. In this case, we have like a right-handed alpha helix, which like just from the looks reminds a little bit of like the DNA double helix, I would say. So you always like, for example, we have like here four amino acids, right? And how these alpha helixes are uh, like formed is like the formation of the alpha helix is driven by hydrogen bonds between the amino group of, the, of one amino acids and the carbonyl group of the amino acid four residues ahead. So you can see here, it's like the hydrogen bond. You have amino acid one, two, three, four, and then like between one and four, the, amino acid, uh, the hydrogen bond is formed, which is like in dimensional, it's like 3.6 residues in between those hydrogen bonds which are like an angstrom, 5.4 angstrom. And also a feature I want to point out here is that the R groups are pointing outside, like as you can see here in purple, it's always like the R group shown. And if we take a look like from the bottom, you can pretty well see that like the R groups are always pointing out. Whereas as a second secondary structure, we have like beta sheets. And here again, like it's like the polypeptide chain is like here formed like by just hydrogen bond between the adjacent amino acids, not like one and four for how it is like for the alpha helix. And also like, so here we have like amino acid one, two, three, four, five, six. So meaning the hydrogen bond is like formed between like amino acid one and two, between amino acid two and three and so on. And, we, and if we imagine like uh, beta sheets like, like actually as a sheet, so we have the R groups like alternating up and down, which is also shown here in purple again with the, with the R groups. And there are two different, like in nature there are two different structures of beta sheets are found. One of them is like parallel, uh, uh, parallel and one of them is anti-parallel. So, but like actually in nature, like anti-parallel is much more common. So if you take a look at the protein structure, like let's say 80% of the beta sheets will find are anti-parallel. Can anyone imagine or have an idea why this could be? Yes? So you mean like the linker you need is like, exactly. So if we imagine like, uh, Beta sheets like this. So we go from the N to the C terminus again. So the linker you need is like much smaller 
for like an empty parallel better sheet. Whereas if we always have like this, so imagine like the linker we need here, sorry, is much larger. So like also like it's m most likely that also from an energetic point of view that they will fold like this. And as a third common, like, secondary structure, I want to mention, like, better turns or better, better bends. And they are most likely found to, to reverse the direction of a polypeptide chain. Again, they also stabilized by a hydrogen bond. Like, as we saw for alpha helix, it's between, like, amino acid 1 and 4. And there are, like, two types are shown, type 1 and type 2. The difference, as you can see on this image, is just like where the, the R groups point out. Like at type 1, they point towards us, whereas for type 2, they point away from us, the R groups. And again, here it said that like high propensity of glycine and proline in beta bands, especially glycine in type 2. And it's also like, why would this be? So has anyone an idea why glycine is like amino acids, which is often found in beta bands. So as we heard before, like glycine only has like this hydrogen. As an R group, it's like a very flexible amino acid. can fold in different like angles. And like, as you can imagine, like turns or loops, so they should be flexible as much as possible that you can link like different secondary structures together or like different elements of the protein. That's why we, glycine is often found in better bands or better turns. Yes? Yeah. Sorry? In which situation? I mean like if you imagine, I mean I don't know if that I mean, my answer would be like, as you can imagine, like a protein, like, I mean, the function of a protein is like 100% dependent of like its structure, right? So if you think about like certain enzymes, for example, there are like uh, parallel beta sheets which are necessary to, to carry like, or to carry out like a certain function of the protein, right? So which is like most likely why they fold in this and also at the end it will be at the end be the most energetic favorable state of the protein, which is like in terms of thermodynamics, like the, the best for the protein to fold in. So I think this would be my answer for it. Yes? Sorry? You mean like that better sheets are actually f f like more favorable than alpha helices? Uh, I would say no. I mean like if you can, no. I mean if, if you take a look at like protein structures, like they occur at the same level, alpha helices and beta bonds. Uh, beta sheets, sorry. Exactly. So they are linked the same way. 
yeah. Okay. So uh, I showed you this Ramachandran plot before, and like actually scientists made up like or optimized this Ramachandran plot over the last decades. So they always bring updates out there, and like there are now like well-described regions in this Ramachandran plot. So we saw the unlabeled Ramachandran plot before, but like actually they found out that like if amino acids are most likely gathered together in like this region of the Ramachandran plot, they most likely to be involved in left-handed left-handed alpha helixes, or like parallel beta sheets or anti-parallel beta sheets or right-handed alpha helixes. So this Ramachandran plot already gives us like a hint or idea what possible structure, which possible secondary structure, a stretch of amino acids or polypeptide will fold into. But for sure it's not like it's only estimation and it's not like the real result or, or how the protein will occur in nature. I want to mention like another uh, possibility how we can determine like secondary structures of proteins, which is called like uh, sorry, circular dichroism spectroscopy. So, or short like CDS. So what you do here is like simply you take your protein into solution. You have like this cuvette, in here you have like your protein of interest, and then you shine like circularized, polarized light on this, in this cuvette, and then like via spectroscopy, you can measure the absorbance at different wavelengths, and it turned out that like, for example, like the best absorbance like for alpha helixes is around like 200, whereas like for better conformation or random coil, it's different. So you can take a whole protein into solution and like depending on what is the outcome of this, of this plot, you can already say like this protein has most likely, the most common structure in a protein is like an alpha helix or it's like a beta conformation, but you can't determine like the whole structure of a protein also with this method. And this method is also used that you can test in the lab that if a protein is denatured or not, so it's still active. So let's imagine you work in the lab, so you work in a protein biochemistry lab, so you purify your protein of interest, and then you want to do some experiments with it. So you always have negative results of your experiment, so which can be like a lot of possibilities why this is happening, but to exclude that your protein is not active anymore, you can simply do this CDS analysis, which is like fast, and will give you already like an idea that your protein is at least like still folded, it will not tell you if it's like the right fold or not, but it will tell you that it's not just like a random coil or like a random uh, structure of your protein, which will give you an idea or you can exclude at the end that your experiments are not working because your protein is not structured anymore. Yeah. I mean here? I mean, for me, it's just like the absorbance of the wavelength, but, uh, but because they use like the circularized polarized light, so I think it has to do something like which en energetic state of the light goes up and down. Sorry, the negative value? Uh, to be honest, I don't know what is actually the outcome of the negative value. 
So as I mentioned before, like the protein function is like dependent on of its structure, right? And so a protein that has folded into its physiological relevant conformation is said to be in its native or fold or native state. And misfolded or denatured proteins are typical non-functional. So has anyone idea how you can like misfold or denature a protein? Sorry? Temperature, yes. Temperature, for example. Any other ideas? Yes. So you mean like the pH, yeah, alter the pH, like either low or high, that's correct. High salt, yes. So these are actually like, so if you heat your sample, for example, you will misfold your protein if you add like some like detergents or like high salt concentration or like low salt concentrations, meaning depending on your protein. So the protein will become unstructured and this, therefore it will become in like his non-functional or like misfolded state. And here I want to mention like a scientist, which name is Christian Enfensen. So he received the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1972, and he came up with some, something which is called like the Enfensen dogma. So this says that the, all the information required for a protein to fold into its native state is contained within its primary sequence. And so what this means, so I will guide you through within the next slides. So we learned about like the primary structure, which is simply like the amino acid sequence. We heard about like secondary structures, which are the most commonly features are like alpha helices and beta sheets. And also like then like in a three-dimensional space, the whole protein will, will fold into its native stage, which is then functional at the end. And here there's just like one example shown like from a textbook, and this is just like to show you how you can actually represent or show like a protein structure, three-dimensional protein structure, and like if you take a look at like research papers or like textbooks, for example. So in panel A, we simply have like, to point out that like most of the structure, secondary structures found in this protein are like uh, alpha helixes. Or here they just show the surface of the protein. In C and D, they include like all the hydrophobic amino acids, which are most likely to point inside the protein. And I mean, this is like this example, which I show you here is like the structure of myoglobin. So in red, they also show like heme. And so A, you would show if you just want to draw attention, which are the most common features in the structure. B, you would use like to see the surface and to see that like heme, there's like this heme pocket which perfectly fits in. And then like C and D you can use like to show like the reader of this article or like the students in the textbook like what amino acids are like if you uh, divide them in like in hydrophobic and hydrophilic amino acids, which ones are the ones who point inside the protein and which are the ones who are in the surface of the protein. And besides that, like the shape will be dictated by long range interactions that are very difficult to predict. So it's basically impossible to know the three dimensional shape of a protein based on its primary sequence, unless you already know the shape of a related protein. So meaning at the end, if you really want to know the exact three dimensional structure of a protein, 
you can't simply use like computational modeling. You always will have to solve the structure, and there are like different possibilities how to solve a, a protein structure. The most common one in the last years was like crystallography, but it's also there. You have limitations. Not all proteins can get crystallized, and also it's always most likely that not that you can't crystallize the whole protein. So again, you have like cut the protein and then make two different crystals and then like it again at the computer remodel them again. So there was also like a method which was called NMR, but it's like I would say almost dead nowadays because like a new method came out which is called cryo-electron microscopy. I don't know if everyone has heard about this already. So the advantages of cryo-EM are simply that you don't have to crystallize your protein. You can also work with like less amount of your protein and it's much, much faster than like crystallization. So you simply just simplify it. You take a shot with a microscope of your protein of interest. So most likely you will find them like in different angles, rotated about. So you have to collect data for like hundreds of these proteins. And then like you have an actually shot of your protein. For sure you have to do some computational and modeling. But it's much simpler and faster, which is like nowadays I would say the most common a method for structural biologists. Also, I want to say that, like, I mean, it's impossible to, to or like, to predict the three-dimensional shape of a protein just like by looking at its, at its primary structure, for example. But, I mean, nowadays, like, computational biologists or informatics, like, became like more sophisticated, I would say, and actually, like, in Pharmaceutical companies, they use computational modeling to test different compounds. Like, like 20, 30 years ago, a pharmaceutical company wanted to come out with a new compound. So they take like 1,000 different compounds and they do all the, di all the different tests you want to do for it. And at the end, maybe one of the 1,000 different compounds which are only differ a little bit in their structure or in you know, a different R group bonding outside in inside of the protein or whatever. There's maybe like one functional of them. So what they do nowadays also to reduce costs for sure is like they hire computational biologists. You can already predict a lot of things. So at the end you will have still have to test the different compounds, but you can maybe reduce it already like from 1,000 compounds in the beginning to like only 100 compounds at the end, which saves a lot of money for the company. So if you're interested in computational biology, I think there's a good market out there that you will find a job later on. So the critical question now is like, what predicts or directs the protein folding into the native state? So let's say if there are like 100 amino acids in a protein, and these all have conformational flexibility in their molecules. So then the number of possible conformation that a protein can take will be greater than the number of molecules in the universe. So, but yet, I mean, all proteins have a predominating fold. So what governs this? I mean, it's not easy to answer, but for sure, thermodynamics play a role in this process. So, like all processes, the folding of a protein into a particular conformation is driven by the laws of thermodynamics. And a protein will fold in such a way that it attains its lowest possibility, 
Gibbs free energy, or in short, delta G. So, and here they came up with this equation. Has it, have you seen this before? Yes? Okay, good. Anyway, I want to remind you a short about this. So, you have delta G, which equals delta H minus T delta S. And like H is like the enthalpy, S is the entropy, and G is like the Gibbs free energy. And so, it's important though, like in nature, like how lower your delta G is, it's more favorable as, a, as seen like from an energetic point of view. So meaning the lower the delta G, the more stable the, the structure will be, the most likely it will be the one that occurs in nature. But what drives these processes for proteins? So again, so first, I mean, there are different forces involved or different like phenomenons involved. And I want to go with, through all of them with you like step by step. So first, I want to start with something which is called like the hydrophobic effect. So meaning that like the ordering of amino acids with respect to their surrounding aqueous environment. So if you imagine like a protein, a globular protein in solution, so there will be always like water molecules surrounded by them, right? Or each amino acid has like different water molecules attached to them. So meaning like hydrophobic, which are like non-bolar and especially aromatic amino acids, puree themselves in the core of the protein to shield themselves from surrounding water. Whereas like hydrophilic amino acids, which are most like, like polar and charged amino acids, will orient themselves to come in contact with the surrounding water. And here we can just see the surface of a protein in, three, in the structure, like, and in red, you can only see like the different water molecules, and in B panel P, you can see like the protein without the water molecules. But what does this actually mean? Like, it's like, first of all, like the amino acids will arrange themselves in, like, in a three-dimensional space, right? which is most likely not favorable as an energetic point of view because like you increase like the entropy in this way. So meaning at the end, it's not favorable for energetic or for thermodynamics or for the Gibbs free energy. But since like with this hydroph hydrophobic effect, all hydrophobic amino acids will point inwards the protein. So meaning so they push away the water molecules which increase or decreases like, yeah. Sorry, you, if there will be no water molecules any, anyhow, I'm pretty sure the structure will change. But like, yeah. But it's, I mean, like, it's hard to imagine like in which possible state you will find like a protein without any, I mean, you will always have it in some buffer solution or in something where else like water present. So, just remind, the hydrophobic effect is like hydrophobic amino acids point inwards the core of the, of the protein, and the hydrophilic amino acids are more likely to be on the surface of the protein. And so since like the water molecules from the amino acid, from the hydrophobic amino acids are like driven away by these forces, so therefore that's an energetic favorable state for protein folding. And here there's like an example given. So for the hydrophobic effect. So here we can simply see like 
the primary sequence of the protein. And in green, uh, the amino acids labeled which are like hydrophobic. And in red, you have like the amino acids which are like hydrophilic. And if you then want to show the structure in a research paper, you can color the different amino acid chains. And you can show it that like the green uh, amino acids will point inwards of the protein. And the red, so the hydrophilic amino acids, they will be on the surface of, of the protein. Besides that, there's like a lot of other different things which, which help a protein to fold into its native stage. So as I mentioned, or we already heard, like hydrogen bonds or salt bridges. Therefore, if you, if you alter like the salt content in a certain buffer, you can denature a protein, for example, as well. So these hydrogen bonds can form between amino acids with polar R groups, and salt bridges form between amino acids with charged groups. You have hydrophobic interactions within like different proteins, which are shown here. So if you imagine, we have like we talked about like the secondary structures or the secondary elements in like proteins. So we have like two different uh, beta sheets. Most likely what you will do if they really fold in a three-dimensional space in the, for the whole protein, there can also be an interaction between those two, right? So and th which drives then at the end that they're not found like this in nature. You will have like, let's, And you have like interactions is here as well. So which means like the process always comes more complex. And for sure you also will have like find like disulfide bridges uh, within like different protein structures. And at the end there's like a summary of this thermodynamics of protein folding. So as we heard before, it's like we want to have like the lowest possible delta G, and this is what also happens in nature. So at the first, we have like the conformation of like the different amino acids. They gather together in the, so they get structure, which increases our delta G, which is like unfavorable. Then we have a decrease of this effect because of the hydrophobic effect we talked about, again, Hydrophobic amino acids go inside, water gets pushed out, which decreases this delta G. And then we have like, you can't imagine like protein folding, it's not like A, B, C, D, and that's it. And D is like our final stage. So there are a lot of possibilities that we can get to this actually structure at the end. Yes, there's a question. Sorry? Uh, any confirmation of the amino acids that yeah. yeah I mean like as we heard here like right it's like uh, they most likely have aromatic rings so which are like, uh, for the hydrophobic amino acids, which so you have for sure you have like a certain group of like amino acids with different R groups which are more likely hydrophobic. And for the hydrophilic we have like 
this polar and charge domain assets, which favor this. We're coming back to the actually folding. <clears throat> For sure, like we want to have like the best possible delta G at the end, and I will show you a slide later on how we can imagine like this protein folding in nature. And also for me, like a fascinating fact is like, when this, this like protein folding disappears, like let's say like many milliseconds, right? It's not like a process that will take a lot of time. And for me, that's really a fascinating uh, about this. So we talked about the Anfinsen dogma and I want to show you what was his actually experiment to prove his hypothesis and also which he received the Nobel Prize for in chemistry. So I think he used a ribonuclease, so he just purified the ribonuclease, showed that it was a catalytic, catalytically, catalytically active ribonuclease, so it's just in its native state, as we learned. So, and then he adds some urea and reduces like the protein. So meaning the protein gets denatured, it gets in an unfolded state, so it's not active anymore. So he could show like by adding of urea and beta mercaptic ethanol, so he can make the protein, he can denature the protein, it's not active anymore. And then like he just did like simple dialysis so meaning he titrates away again like the urea which is in the buffer and he didn't add anything else there, right? And at the end he has like a protein which was then shown to be catalytically active again. So this was like a simple experiment like 40, 50 years ago but with this experiment he really could show that like the forces which drive the protein folding are already stored in like the primary structure of amino acids, right? So, and as mentioned before, he was laureated with the Nobel Prize in 1972 for this experiment. This was a slide I want to show you because like we talked about like each protein has like this one favorite stage, which is the native state, which is called here like capital N. And this is like the single lowest possible free energy conformation. And this is, you can imagine like the protein folding, like it's a, it's a landscape of the protein folding. So we start around here and like there are different possibilities how you can get to this single state here. It's also shown like more simply here again with like, you can see like the primary sequence of a protein so some certain region of this will most likely fold in beta sheets. One of them will most likely fold in alpha helices. But at the end, like how they are arranged together determines at the end, which is the actually 3D structure. And for most proteins, all this information is already given in the primary sequence. But for sure, there are always exceptions, right? So there was like, a class of proteins which are called like chaperones or chaperones, which were discovered, which helps protein to fold. And one of the best studied groups of this is like HSP70, right? HSP stands for heat shock proteins. That's why, because they are much more abundant or upregulated like when you stress cells with like elevated temperature levels, which we heard about like at higher temperatures, also proteins are more likely to get denatured 
So therefore, you need someone who helps or guiding the protein to fold into its native state. And uh, I mean, I don't want to go into detail for these slides, but it's like just like the basics, which is we have like our protein. And then we have like HSP, which is like ATP dependent. And then like the protein and the HSP get together, HSP40 joints, which then triggers ATP hydrolysis. And this helps like then to fold the protein into its native state. And a lot of these HS, HSP proteins like are really found at the exit tunnel of the ribosome. I don't know if you're like familiar with like protein synthesis, but I think you heard about it already. So at the end, we have like our mRNA with like different ribosomes sitting on there, right? And so the ribosome will read through the, through the mRNA and then so within like the large ribosomal subunit, we have like the pep peptide exit tunnel, how is it called? So the peptide gets released through this exit tunnel of the, of the large ribosomal subunit. And usually the protein already, as soon as it gets out, it gets like structured, right? And so a lot of these HSP proteins are then like guided to the ribosome exit tunnel, they join here and help the protein to fold into its native state. You also can imagine like uh, possibilities or scenarios inside a cell where also this HSP protein, so they attach the native or the, the growing peptide of the exit tunnel and then they hold it. And then because, I mean, it's like very important for a protein to be like directed in time and in space, right? So some proteins you will need like at, the, at, at, the, at different membranes or like in different well-defined regions within a cell. So also these HSP proteins, they help to deliver proteins at other regions in the, in, in, inside cells. And like there's also like these chaperonins, which are, you can see here, like they have like a pocket in there. So meaning the native protein or the unfolded protein goes inside this pocket and then like also again with ATP hydrolysis that can help to form the native state of the protein. These chaperonins can also travel within the cell and then the folded intermediate gets released again of the protein. Which also like if you think about like for example like proteins which has to go like to some transmembranes for example so they are like uh, chaperones involved as well as other like RNA based uh, RNA driven uh, ribozymes which really trigger like that the ribosome goes to the transmembrane and the, and the, and the, and the proteins that is released inside the, the membrane, membrane already. So what I want you to remember from this is just like most likely like all the information that the protein can fold into this native state is already like stored within like the primary sequence. But especially like during when the cell gets stressed, so this can like trigger that like proteins get misfolded. So it can help that protein, there will be protein aggregates. So therefore there's also like another protein family which are 
chaperones which help then the cell to fold the protein back into its native state so that it's like functional again. So and this process is like tri triggered by ATP hydrolysis, which is important to remember. And if you think about it, I mean, it also makes sense, right? Because like if protein gets misfolded in a, in a cell, so this just like causes like a lot of like problems for the cell. So actually, if a lot of proteins get misfolded, it also can lead to apoptosis, for example, right? That the protein will, uh, the cell will die. And so at the end, like, together, these thermodynamic forces order the folding of globular proteins into a compact three-dimensional structure whose precise conformation is critical for function. And so this is just like the protein structure which was first solved, which was like myoglobin, and it was also awarded with a Nobel Prize in, for chemistry in 1962. And besides all these like globular proteins, which are like water soluble, we also have like a class of fibrous proteins. And these fibrous proteins or structural proteins, like unlike globular proteins, are not water soluble. And maybe like best known example of this is like collagen and so this collagen which is like not non-water soluble will occur like actually like like these triple helixes in nature inside the cell so they're just like there for like making like structure giving structure within a cell and this formation of this covalent bonds is vitamin c dependent and I also want to mention here that like mutations to collagen genes are known to cause osteogenesis, imperfector or brittle bone disease. And there are also like other less severe mutations, which are sometimes found in individuals with unusual flexibility. So meaning that like a lot of like artists like in circus or like which you find somewhere like they most likely, besides that they train hard and they practice hard, they most likely have like a mutation within like the collagen genes, which just makes them more flexible and it's more easy than for them to bend over, right? All right. So are there any further questions about protein structure other than that? Yes. Sorry? I mean, yes, I mean, like, if proteins get misfolded, I mean, it's, I mean, the drastic end at the end is like the apoptosis itself, but they also can, like, misfolded proteins can stored in, 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 in some comparts within the cell. They can be stored there, and then at the end, they get folded again when they are needed. So because you, you have to think about, like, I mean, protein synthesis, like, I would say, like, 60-70% of the energy of a cell goes into protein biosynthesis. So it, so it takes a lot of energy for, for a cell to synthesize proteins. So, and if you already have made the protein, so like it's from energetic level, it's like most likely that they will store it somewhere instead of like degradation. But this would be like another possibility. So the, the, the cell will first try to degrade the proteins, which, which will harm them. So before they go to apoptosis, right? So they have like certain like rescue models within a cell. So protein gets misfolded. It can be either get stored or degraded within the cell. 
which sort of the cell will always try to keep alive, right? But at the end, if all this like fails, the, pro, uh, the, the cell will go into apoptosis pathway and will die at the end. All right. How they make it? I mean, like, they just like took actually look at the 3D structure. So I think when the Ramachandran blood came out, like in the 60s or so, so they first had like limited data available, right? Because there were not like a lot of structures solved already. So only most likely there were only like small parts of peptides solved. And they really take a look at each single amino acid which is found in the 3D structure. And within this 3D structure they will make like, they see like glycine number one in this chain is found in this orientation. They will take a look at the angles and the X and the Y axis and they will make a dot for this. Then they go to the second glycine in the structure and they see like, okay, it's orientated in this. So it's actually really like a data-based plot. So it's really based on three-dimensional structure. Yes? Sorry? Sorry, say it again, I didn't hear you. <laughs> exactly, this is what they do. But, but for, some, for some proteins, it's also possible that it can crystallize the whole protein, right? But like, I would say like for structural biologists, the main struggle, or 80% of the work is like, 